Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Hey, Tom, what is that you said about award-winning a few minutes? I did do that, didn't I? Well, on May 15th, the Catholic Press Association website announced the winners of the 2020 Gabriel Awards, as in Archangel Gabriel, recognizing the best of film, broadcasting, and cross-platform media. The award honors, we should say, works that support themes of dignity, compassion, community, and justice. And we couldn't be uh, more humbled by receiving this award. Yes, we received first place in the category of storytelling or a narrative series for our October 2019 series of three episodes on creative efforts to save unborn babies. We featured many guests, including the presidents of Focus on the Family and Students for Life, the founders of the Baby Box Movement, and the Obria Network of Clinics, as well as leaders of the Women's Care Center Network. And this series idea was your brainchild, Chris. <laughs> I'm not so sure that uh, I, I deserve to have that called my brainchild, but I have had the opportunity to work very closely with some of the amazing people in the Women's Care Center and have seen directly how some of their work and people like them can, can quite literally change lives. So today we are presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. Normally, as our listeners know, we're heard in the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode, however, will be played on various podcast apps and, of course, at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Uh, this episode is a type of uh, third of three parts um, that we've just done dealing with... Um, Oh, either conspiracy theories or at least aspects of conspiracy theories. Dr. Barbara Golder first talked about making sense of all the new research rapidly being published in medical literature, often off online and without peer review. And then we talked to psychologist Peter Malinowski, who splendidly explained the psychology behind our desire to sometimes believe in what might be called conspiracy theories. Yes, Peter taught us that we tend to subscribe to conspiracy theories um, out of a sense of lack of overall security. Now, on this show, we probably can't improve anyone's sense of security. We may not improve anything about anyone. Um, but we, we do want to give people a better sense of where these and other types of feelings can come from. So what are we hoping to accomplish? Well, we want to move away from conspiracy theories per se and see if we can help people who might be thinking, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what's real in the media regarding COVID-19. So we're going to dive into several of the issues that appear to be dividing our country and politicizing a virus. Look, a virus isn't blue or red. It's not a party. It's not even purple. It's just a virus. So in this show, we'll ask our experts why they believe what they do about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 and discuss how we might approach new and confusing information that's coming to us daily. So, Getting into scripture, 1 Peter 3.15 says what? Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and reverence. And that's what we aim to do today, a reasoned defense, gently and reverently. We don't want to stir up fear. We don't want to give unwarranted optimism. Uh, although we can be ultimately optimistic, uh, and that's worth pointing out as many times as we can think to, um, because we've read the book and we know how this story ends. Right. Uh, I don't know if he actually said it, but uh, Tim Tebow is credited with saying, I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds my future. Uh, and we as believers need uh, to remember that. 
Well, moving on now to this show, we have a tandem of experts appearing with us tonight. Paul Carson uh, and Mark Strand, both professors at North Dakota State University. Paul's an infectious disease specialist who also serves as a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Health, while Mark is an epidemiologist, a word we never thought we would use as much as we have in the last 60 <laughs> days, <laughs> who's very well versed in the COVID-19 pandemic. Paul and Mark, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. you. You know, Chris and I have several friends, family members, acquaintances sending us videos, quotes, and articles that challenge the conventional wisdom of public health experts. Sometimes might even get our blood pressure up if we take it too seriously. What sorts of things have you been seeing that just doesn't seem to make sense to you? I'll start, uh, if that's okay. Very pleased to be on with my colleague and friend, Dr. Mark Strand. Uh, this is, we've both been on your show at different times, but it's really a pleasure to be here together. Yes. Um, you know, I, I sort of lumped these into kind of three categories of things that have been sent to me, and I think I get something darn near every day um, from friends and family, uh, both uh, highly educated and maybe uh, sometimes you know, not highly educated in these areas. Um, and I'd sort of lump those into things that I've seen that are just outright fabrications. Um, and then stuff that kind of seems a little bit on the fringe, maybe coming from somebody that has a degree or has some credentials that you might think, uh, you know, gives them some legitimacy. And then um, I would say I get these various things that seem to come from uh, concerned physicians. So they have that MD behind their name, but they're not necessarily working in public health. They're not trained epidemiologists. Um, and, uh, but they're speaking out on kind of how they see things and then doing, uh, you know, maybe some armchair epidemiology, if you will. And, uh, it's been really kind of the wild west out there on the internet when you, you look at some of these things in particular. How about you, Mark? Yeah. I mean, I receive, you know, the same kind of information. Um, and so it's, you know, to the point almost where I just don't have time to keep looking into them. And it's often sincere friends. And they're like, can you please watch this or it takes 20 minutes or so, <laughs> you know, it's in its well intended person. So I hope our conversation today can provide some footing and some framework for people to responsibly handle some of the information that's coming at them. So Paul, you said one of them was an outright fabrication. Yeah, I got one uh, sent by a very nice lady who uh, I, follows me doing adoration on Wednesday mornings. So I kind of always wait for her and her husband to come in so I can go off to work. And she sent me a, a thing saying this uh, Nobel laureate, a, a biochemist named Dr. Hanjo, claimed with 100% certainty that the virus was fabricated as a bioweapon in a Chinese laboratory. And I thought, boy, you know, for a guy who's a Nobel laureate to uh, be that strong on this, I'm kind of just wondering, you know, what he knows that I don't know. And, and then when I went and looked at it, he, it turns out he didn't say that at all. In fact, he said publicly, I don't know how the, somebody put this on my name, but I categorically, categorically don't believe this. Um, but it, it made widespread circulation and was kind of going all over the place on the Internet. <laughs> It, it, it's kind of like those myths of Chuck Norris, you know, all those things they say about Chuck. He wonders where they started. Like when you, they ask, you know, how many push-ups can Chuck Norris do? The answer is all of them. He just laughs at them all, you know, so it's a fabrication. But it is odd. I mean, part of the challenge I think we face now, we're not the first to point this out, is that it's so easy to spread information so quickly now mm -hmm. because of the technology and because of people's willingness to take information off of the technology. I'll bet that story was viral 
um, you know, in a matter of minutes. Right. Absolutely. And Paul, you brought up the category of fringe science. And I don't want to give credibility to any particular uh, videos or things, but let's address some of the things within them. Um, what were some of the fringe science things you saw brought up? Well, you know, maybe we don't want to give credibility to specific ones, but some of them were, were very widely watched. I mean, it had millions and millions yes. of hits on YouTube. And, and uh, you know, I think the one that maybe many people saw was the, uh, you know, PhD scientist who formerly worked on some NIH-related grants um, and uh, kind of put this video out where she's interviewed by uh, uh, kind of a talking head type person who um, asks her, um, a variety of questions that uh, lead her to talk about Anthony Fauci was, uh, you know, involved in cover-ups and payoffs during the HIV epidemic, really kind of impugning and profiteering off of AIDS and sort of impugning his uh, authority and credibility, um, made the claim that the virus was not naturally occurring. It could only have been uh, manipulated in a laboratory um, noted that NIH grant dollars were going to a Wuhan lab, um, said things like you have to be injected, uh, you, you've been injected with coronaviruses anytime you've gotten a flu vaccine. Well, let's go through each of those one by one. Um, first of all, uh, there's no evidence that I know of for the, the Fauci comments on profiting off of AIDS, is there? Right. There was zero evidence offered for that. Zero. And the guy has survived six presidencies by, you know, I think, having, uh, you know, uh, impeccable credentials. But <clears throat> So I love what we've seen about whether or not the virus could have naturally occurred versus being manipulated in a lab. What do we have on that? So there, there's a few things there. Um, one is that some... Uh, really uh, kind of hotshot uh, genetic scientists uh, published an article in Nature, which is, you know, one of the preeminent journals uh, in the world um, that looked at the uh, homology between the current coronavirus and uh, uh, several known bat coronaviruses. Homology meaning? Meaning similarity. how similar it is. And uh, with one of them, it was, it had over 96% homology, very, very similar. And the few mutation differences uh, were very readily explained by uh, um, natural selection and, and mutation in the wild. Another study that I thought was really interesting looked at antibodies to various bat coronaviruses in villagers in China living close to or far away from known large bat caves. And you can find that uh, people living near these caves, quite a few of them had antibodies to a variety of different bat coronaviruses, suggesting that they've been infected in the past and that these have jumped into human beings. It's quite reasonable to believe that and expect that. It's happened with uh, MERS. It's happened with uh, the original SARS. Um, and that's why, why uh, laboratories like the Wuhan lab was studying this because they knew this is a real threat to us um, that needs to be understood well to try and protect us uh, in, in the future. So there, there's been a lot of interest in studying these viruses. The you know, I was, oh, go ahead. I was going to add that paper from Nature that you were talking about concludes our analysis shows that SARS-CoV-2 is not a laboratory construct or a powerfully manipulated virus. It is possible but less likely that it escaped from a lab. And I think this is one of the phrases that sometimes conspiracy theories latch onto, possible but less likely, and they don't understand that basically the way science works is that it's a never-ending quest to be less wrong. And they do not understand that any proper scientist is always going to qualify. And so there's a manipulation in some ways of these scientific statements that are less than absolutist, which are then interpreted as saying, see, they can't prove it. 
And I think this is most unfortunate. And I guess it in some ways shows the degree of kind of science illiteracy among many people who can't appreciate that reality of scientific research. I think that's interesting. You know, if we look back into our medical past, we can think of those great stories of our our historical peers refusing to listen to data or to abide by data, not wearing gloves to prevent infection and not wanting to use penicillin and things like that. And that sounds embarrassing now, hundreds of years later, but at the same time, part of part of being a scientist or a user of science is a pretty healthy dose of skepticism. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like the more educated and knowledgeable we become, you know, the more humble we should become for one, because we realize how little I know compared to what there is to know. But we also should develop a sense of, I'm going to take a step off here and let this brew a minute before I pass it on to 5,000 of my followers. That seems to be missing in this, yeah. in this discussion. There's no filter anymore. Mm. I, I think Mark makes a really important point here that, that I totally agree with him is often picked up by that language that we use as scientists is picked up in a bad way. And I teach about this in my class. It's one of the ways this is looked at. It's called the black swan dilemma. So like if I make a hypothesis that there are no black swans out there, they're all white. And the person asked me, well, how do you know that? Well, I looked at a thousand swans and there was no black ones. Well, um, how do you know that the, if you looked at 10,000 more, you wouldn't find one? Well, I looked at 10,000 and didn't find one. You won't ever find a scientist saying, I now know there are no black swans. I, I've, you know, I've done a really big sample and I now know there are no <laughs> black swans. Um, similarly, you know, when, in, the, in the vaccine world, you know, how can you, you, you look at Jenny McCarthy on a TV program with equal weight with somebody from the NIH saying, can you tell me with 100% certainty that vaccines don't cause autism? And you watch the NIH scientist squirm in his chair because nobody likes that absolutist language. Exactly. We, we won't yeah. use it. Scientists won't use it. You can just say I have greater and greater and greater degrees of certainty as the evidence gets better and better and better. I'd like to bring up from that Nature article, what I found fascinating is like the key part of the virus, the part that binds to our cells on the ACE2 receptor was uh, five out of the six key binding um, amino acids in the protein were different in that bat coronavirus being used in the Wuhan lab versus the one that's spreading around the world now. So that essential part of the virus is completely different. Right, right, exactly. Uh, you know, and this gets down back to as well, gets back to the problem of conspiracies. Do you know where this Wuhan conspiracy started? It started by this article by Pradam et al., this group out of India, who published this non-peer-reviewed paper in this journal called BioArchive, which is a non-peer-reviewed, it's like, pub, send it today, it's published tomorrow. Uh-huh. It was published on January 31st of 2020. It was retracted on February 2nd. So it oh lasted my. three days. All it took was three days. You mean a non-peer-reviewed journal even retracted something? <laughs> the journal, yes, they were forced to. But within three days, it had started this conspiracy fire, which to this day refuses to go out. And so I think, you know, in terms of our topic today, uh, irresponsible publishing of non-peer-reviewed, illegitimate work under the guise of, of, of expertise is egregious and it's really sad and um, it contributes to the starting and the perpetuation of conspiracies and I think Paul you've seen that in the virus I mean sorry in the vaccine world just endlessly oh for sure for sure 
So what about the fact that if you've received the flu vaccine, you've been injected with coronaviruses? Yeah, it's just like uh, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs there. I mean, I don't know where that, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I don't even have any idea where that uh, idea came from. I think you hear sometimes in the anti-vaccine literature that, you know, vaccines are contaminated with this or contaminated with that, and that we're injecting these bad things in there. The the person who, you know, put that on that video offered zero evidence for that. Um, and, you know, you, you think about how these are done. You take a, a you take a circulating strain of the influenza virus and you inoculate that into chicken eggs and you grow it that way and then you inactivate the virus by killing it and, and then we make our vaccines out of that. Um, I don't know why or how this person imagined that somehow coronaviruses are getting into that. I mean, the timeline is wrong, right? Because the vaccine that we all received this season was made before coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 was even discovered. That's, that's correct. True. One of those cases where the truth is frustratingly present. Yep. Right. 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 I think one of the one of the things that bothers me uh, is the potential effect this could have on next year's vaccine for both flu and, uh, God willing, we have a coronavirus vaccine. And so, on the one hand, you could say, "Well, this is just childish, you know, harmless sort of uh, conspiracy theory propagation." But in reality, it could be very harmful. Because if enough people in quasi-positions of authority share those kinds of unsubstantiated views, they could easily turn people away from something that could, that could prevent a lot of pain and suffering. And I think that's what personally frustrates me when I hear that. I, I consider it to be, you might call it, intellectual abuse. The, behind some of these conspiracies are conspiracy theory creators who themselves are intelligent but cruel people who create this stuff. <laughs> and then the majority of the conspiracy theorists, I think, are victims of a psychological fear orientation that makes them vulnerable to it. So you have a group of people who I think are, are abusing and manipulating victims, people who are vulnerable. And then you have those who are trying to oppose them, trying to stem this current of public opinion that's out there. And you're sort of just like unable to, to stop it because there's such an appeal to the conspiracy that was started. So I couldn't agree with you more. This is not just a matter of frustration or arguments with people. There are lives and there is, you know, there's human life at stake with lies and conspiracies, which are not based in fact. Yeah. I had a friend today say, um, it's one thing for a child to yell fire in a movie theater. It's another mm. thing for the local fire inspector. <laughs> yeah. Say, I think there's a fire. His sin <laughs> is greater because he should know better. Uh, and people are going to listen to him. So he's got a greater responsibility to society to not mislead them. Um, and that's the, that's the response I so often want to share when I'm watching the talking heads. You should know better. Yeah. The flu vaccine increases the chance you'll get COVID by 36%. Where did that come from? Another one, I don't know, that, that was stated on, you know, the one of the videos we were talking about, again, zero evidence offered uh, um, for that. I take that back. There, there was, uh, there was um, a, a mention from a study earlier on non-COVID coronaviruses um, being, uh, being, testing for those and being somewhat higher in influenza vaccinated uh, population. But what the authors of that said was... Um, that uh, 
they didn't adjust for children, you know, children and or age. And so when you adjusted for age, that all went away, that, that association. And, went away. and those are the coronaviruses that cause the common cold. That cause the common cold. That has nothing to do with uh, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. This was a creative one. Wearing a mask literally activates your own virus. Yeah, that's like like stunning. Like just because of all that inactivated virus that's floating. (laughs) Yeah, so you get you're infected with inactivated virus, but then when you rebreathe in your mask, somehow it activates it. I mean, it it just defies logic. Uh, Obviously, if you're infected, you're infected. Um, There's no evidence that I'm aware of at all that uh, you know wearing a mask does anything to to the activity of a virus or making it more able to cause damage or infect you further. But let's consider, you know, what's the motivation for a, an argument like that? There's a fundamental opposition to mask wearing, which is a symbol of social compliance. It's awkward to wear a mask in public. It, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. And then it represents concession to authorities, which many people are just loathe. And so I think to try and cobble together opposition to masks and find so-called evidence that suggests masks are not only not helpful, but they're even harmful, is just a whole pile of information to try and support a prior hypothesis that suggests masks are bad uh, because of our opposition to the people who are promoting them. So that gets at some of the psychology, I think, behind some of these some of these ideas. There's no scientific basis for that, but somebody's looking for any crumbs of evidence to support a prior conviction, which is don't wear masks because that shows you've sort of bought into the deep state and you've bought into the groups who are promoting its use. That is brilliant. I love the wisdom. Are all epidemiologists as psychologically in tune as you are, Mark? Uh, No, I'm just trying my best here. You're an outlier, (laughs) a good outlier. And and what about the statement that hydroxychloroquine is the most effective medication to treat COVID-9, yet the government is threatening physicians with taking away their licenses if they prescribe it too much? Yeah, that according to the AMA purportedly. Yeah. So that was, that was a claim in that, in that same video. And then, uh, you know, my, my father, who's a retired physician, sent me another video of a Texas family physician kind of in an open park with a kind of, you know, mic and an audience around her, you know, uh, um, who, who kind of made similar, similar claims uh, that, uh, you know, she'd given it to hydroxychloroquine to several of her patients and it was nearly miraculous at how they, uh, you know, got better. And then the, the uh, other video with the PhD scientist saying that the hydroxychloroquine is very effective and, uh, and the AMA is, you know, threatening to have physicians lose their licenses. Well, the AMA has never said anything of the sort. Uh, the AMA cautioned about the use of this, said it's appropriate for physicians to use uh, it as an off-label drug, which we can and we do. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you've heard people like uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and others expressing caution about this until we have better data. Well, the data is starting to come in. We have uh, uh, a cohort study that was non-randomized that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing no benefits. We're still waiting the results of a couple of randomized uh, trials, but the the data is starting to pile up that it is not uh, looking as promising as uh, we had hoped. And I'll tell you in our own state here, um, we just canceled an order of almost a half a million pills, uh, you know, trying wow. to stockpile because um, all the doctors that are following this data and, you know, watching the science are much more, uh, I should say, much less enthusiastic about it now. And, you know, the 
risks uh, are starting to maybe tip towards outweighing the potential benefit. I, I'd say that it still remains to be seen, but um, it, <clears throat> it is, is not a miracle drug. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, and, and there's nobody saying we can't use it. Now we're trying to, actually the problem is now in the good randomized controlled trials, they're having trouble recruiting because patients don't want to uh, sign up for it. Um, so that's a problem. So, Paul, we're, we're pretty close to real time on the release of, uh, of these shows. And just yesterday, a very high-ranking government official, the president, um, was going at it with um, some newscasters about taking the medication in a preventative way. And the newscaster was countering afterwards that not only is there no data that it's beneficial, there's, you know, sort of very substantial data that it's a risk to certain people in high risk groups. For our listeners, could you speak to that? True or false? Is there a risk? Is it any good in a preventative role? Yeah. So uh, the risk that's been associated with this is that it can prolong the QT interval, which is a kind of, for your lay audience, you know, a fancy way of saying it, it, it alters uh, the electrical conductivity of uh, um, the heart muscle or heart uh, electrical system. And that prolongation of the QT interval can make people potentially susceptible to serious arrhythmias, sometimes even fatal arrhythmias. There hasn't been a lot of data yet showing that that's happening. There's been a little bit uh, of anecdotal data, but there's, there's a substantial percentage that do develop this QT prolongation. So it's not something we take lightly and should be used. Uh, you know, if I, were the doc if I were the president's doctor, I would say, no, I don't recommend it, you taking this prophylactically uh, um, until we have much better data. You know, you've gone through some of the um, claims of one of the videos. There was another video early on by a couple of, of uh, physicians, and a lot of their claims are epidemiologic. So, Mark, up over to you in the booth. You know, one of the things they said, you know, there have been millions of cases but very little death. They say, oh, look at Sweden. They've let things open. They're doing great, et cetera. You know, what are the truths? You know, the, are there nuggets of truth within here, or is there exaggeration? What, what should we believe and why? Yeah, so a couple of uh, ER docs were frustrated that the shelter-in-place orders in California were cutting down on the volume in their urgent care business, and they were concerned about some of the effects it would have on society as a result of the shutdown. And so it seemed as if they had some kind of a priori motivation to somehow argue that these restrictions were excessive. So they went and created a YouTube video, which, by the way, has since been pulled down, um, and they made an argument that based on uh, work in their urgent care uh, practice, 6% of all their patients tested for COVID-19 were tested positive. And they also argued that statewide, 12% of patients were positive and then used that to argue that potentially 6 to 12% of all Californians have been effect infected with COVID. So we have millions of cases and very little death. But there's so many, there's a lot of epidemiological problems with their argument, um, not least of which is the quality of the kit they were using for testing. I mean, I have no idea what they were using, um, but we've seen a myriad of tests that have been proven to have been not very effective. So that would be just a starting point. But in terms of their numbers, um, anybody would be cautious about using patients coming to an urgent care clinic as being representative of the population. This is a what's called Berkson's bias. It goes back to 1946. You know, you don't use patients who show up to be representative of the population. So this creates a serious error in your estimates. Um, so this was one of the problems. Um, they also, 
made comparisons with seasonal flu. And, and Paul, did you want to talk a little bit about some of the problems that they had with their comparison to just seasonal flu? Yeah. Uh, and and I, and I want to follow up too on what Mark was just talking about. I, I, saw, I saw one epidemiologist liken you know, to what they were doing by taking a sample of their urgent care patients and extrapolating that to all of California as that's sort of similar to um, taking a, a sample of NBA basketball players heights and applying that to the general population and saying, you know, the average population is going to be six foot seven. Um, and that that's really true. They similarly did uh, uh, something that I see a lot of people doing. And I think this is worth talking about for, oh, you know, a minute or two here. And this, it's a comparison with the seasonal flu. And I've heard from multiple family members, multiple friends, look, I, I've, I've seen these Bakersfield doctors make this comparison. I've seen it in other places that, you know, we have anywhere from 35,000 to as high as 60 plus thousand deaths from influenza each year. Um, this is, you know, looking like maybe a bad flu, uh, a bad flu season. Um, and <clears throat> there's, a, there's a number of problems with this. Um, one is uh, they're often comparing what we call an infection fatality rate with COVID to a case fatality rate with um, influenza. And we, and we really have to separate those two out because that is not at all apples to apples. So a case fatality rate is, they both, have, they both have in the numerator the number of deaths from the virus. But in the denominator with a case fatality rate, it's the people who show up sick and are tested for the virus. An infection fatality rate takes into account all infections, those who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic who didn't go to the doctor, who didn't get tested. So that's a much, much bigger denominator. So if you take the infection fatality rate, we're starting to get some hints of what that is and, and with uh, COVID. It's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of around 0.3 to 0.6% uh, in infection fatality rate. And you only get at that when you survey a big population with antibody tests and kind of get an idea how many people were infected that we missed with our syndromic testing. Um, and, and people will liken that to what's reported by the CDC with the flu, which is 0.1% uh, case fatality rate. Well, that, that influenza number is a case fatality rate. The infection fatality rate is maybe 0.3 to 0.6. So people are saying, well, it's only maybe three times as bad. No, those aren't apples to apples. If you, um, if you take uh, the case fatality rate of uh, COVID, that's more in the neighborhood of one and a half to maybe two to two and a half percent. It's maybe 10 to 15 and by other estimates, maybe 20 times more lethal. If you go back to influenza and you look at in the all infections with influenza, it's 0.01%. Um, uh, Again, so that gives you an infection fatality to an infection fatality of about 15, 20 times higher with uh, COVID. It is much much more lethal. Yeah, Paul, in the paper we're writing together using your data, it looked like the range of uh, fatality rate difference was 12 to 40 times more right. for uh, COVID than for the flu. Right. The, so these estimates have some, you know, wiggle room for confidence intervals. On the worst end of it, it could be over 40 times worse, which gets you more in the neighborhood of the really what the Spanish flu, the 1918 epidemic flu did than seasonal flu. Well, a lot of times in the show, we have to make things simple for me to understand when Tom initially reads them. But, but, but this point, I think, is probably one of the most important we could make. 
and I think a nice way to illustrate it is if, if we had two people in front of us, one of them were infected with influenza, they had a case of it, and another one was infected with coronavirus, they had a case of it. The coronavirus person is much more likely to die. And, and that is, that's not debatable. I mean, that, that's absolutely very right. True. We yeah. haven't seen any data to suggest that wasn't true. I think it's fair to say the only thing we've seen is either an intentional or an accidental mixing of case and infection rates. That's right. Because and the numbers sound so similar, it's easy to get that's right. uh, confused. Yeah. But but I think that hard fact is has never been disputed, and our listeners would would do well to listen to that and sort of remember it. Well, and it, it also should be a bit more intuitive given the fact that we already have 92,000 deaths right. in two months of time with very heavy-handed suppression of human interactions, which is triple the average flu season. So, you know, even that measure is is something. And I think it, people are starting, only the desperate are still pushing some of these, I think, conspiracies and fabulous numbers. Haven't you noticed how in April there was a kind of, renewed confidence with some of them and over time one by one i think the data and the evidence and the early predictions have borne out pretty consistently and i think it has caused some to back down a little bit my friend eustace fernandez actually our friend friend of dr doctor sent me a video today 10 minutes of the uh, chief uh, i think it was public health or epidemiologist officer for sweden and what i learned in sweden is that they haven't been as open as we thought, they do have different restrictions in place, but it's still being pointed to by a lot of people as a, a way for us to go. Although the epidemiologist himself said he would make no recommendations to our nation on what we should or shouldn't do. What, Mark and Paul, do you think we can learn from Sweden uh, for good or for ill? Well, the regardless of you know what we think about the restrictions put in place by neighboring Norway, we do know that Norway has had a mortality rate of 3.4 per 100,000 due to COVID with shelter-in-place orders, where Sweden has had a mortality rate of 17.3 deaths per 100,000. So that's like six times more deaths by having had a more relaxed approach. So uh, I don't think the evidence is there to justify Sweden as a poster child for a natural herd immunity accrual that's going to, in the end, result in less death and less morbidity. Uh, the numbers just don't support that. Mark, you came up in one of our uh, listener emails uh, dealing with China. So I'd like to pose this question and give you a chance to respond. Uh, you've lived and worked in China as an epidemiologist. You've talked about it on previous shows. One of our listeners says he doesn't find you necessarily believable, I think, because you don't think Chinese scientists and medical professionals um, were hiding information from the, West, the rest of the world about SARS-CoV-2. So how would you respond that, uh, you know, uh, your confirmation bias says that I'm going to support those people that I knew and worked with in China that they couldn't possibly be withholding something from us. Yeah, I mean, I think I have several responses that, that would be also explaining how I evaluate and appraise data. So first is I would say, is it the fact that more information, knowledge, or experience with something is the basis of understanding a situation is necessarily an unhealthy bias. You know, any researcher will declare their biases in their paper, and then they'll explain away how the bias did not influence their 
reporting or their finding. So I'm happy to declare that I have a bias, which is prior experience in China. And I'm also willing to suggest that it actually helps my ability to interpret what's happening in China rather than harms it. So for example, I have colleagues in Wuhan. I started doing training with them back on January 27th. And therefore, I was getting real-time data, real-time reporting from medical professionals in Wuhan. And what they were reporting sort of on the streets and in primary care clinics was matching what we were hearing reported at, in the public. Um, I listened to the World Health Organization daily press conferences, uh, almost daily for the, in the early six weeks of this. And what they were saying was also lining up with what I was hearing. Um, and that's also confirmed from the fact that two days ago the, at the World Health Organization meeting, there was a resolution that was proposed to investigate China's role in the start of the, of the COVID epidemic. And it passed, including China approving. They voted Ooh. to uh, permit this investigation because they want to get to the bottom of it. And they're persuaded that they don't have anything to hide, that they are a part of the global public health and medical community trying to stop a viral pandemic. And, and they don't have any, anything, anything to hide. So those are some of the things. And furthermore, you know, there's no, uh, there's no reason that China would want to sabotage their whole economy by, you know, starting this and obviously that's the conspiracy about the start of it but even in terms of hiding data you know when it comes to a pandemic you can run but you can't hide you know even new york they were burying bodies on an island you don't hide dead bodies you know i mean the so the the ability of china given the current realities to have been intentionally misleading in a way as to somehow maybe prolong the epidemic or to allow the epidemic to then leak out to the rest of the world. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, they, China was able to suppress the epidemic from leaking out into almost all of their own provinces. And yet it still managed to get from Wuhan to the rest of the world. Is that China's fault? Did they somehow say, well, let's send them out of Wuhan to the world, but let's not let them. I think it's a sign that their measures were effective and the rest of the world's were not. And then at, as a result of that, people get frustrated. Why did it have to come here? And so to me, it's a little bit of a, a passing the buck. And um, so I, I do have an understanding of China. I, I read the original language and read the, you know, the literature in the original language. And so um, I I believe that any bias I have toward China is a bias that gives me information that, you know, is not easy to access, but it's not bias that clouds my ability to be objective with them. It is so good that we have you on this show, Mark. That was a beautiful <laughs> answer. It made sense to me. And before we get into some more of the philosophic or psychological aspects, there's one more uh, um, data piece, and I've heard this from a number of very intelligent, very connected people, and it's this, that the number of COVID cases is being inflated on death certificates, that physicians are being pressured to put it on death certificates, and that hospitals are being paid more if they put it on the death certificate. What's the, the truth and the falsehood within that? Yeah, that that, that uh, really kind of uh, went viral when uh, uh, one, of, one of our neighboring states' uh, uh, legislators, who is a family physician, um, you know, sort of read aloud on the air uh, a Minnesota Department of Health uh, directive on how to try and uh, incorporate COVID diagnoses into um, death certificates. Here's what the problem was. I mean, this is a very 
understandable, legitimate thing that public health is trying to uh, do. Um, what's going on there is that we, uh, we have, uh, we're seeing lots of excess death. Here's the one thing you can't fudge. What we love in epidemiology we, we, as, as a measure is all-cause mortality. You just can't monkey with that. All if you take all-cause mortality, it's a really hard number that you just can't mess with. And all-cause mortality is way, way up for the last uh, eight to ten weeks compared to the previous five years average in a row. Way up. Everywhere. Um, and... So we're trying to, I mean, the most obvious reason for that is, is the COVID epidemic. And what we're finding is that COVID diagnoses aren't matching that. The, the, the COVID diagnoses are, are being not counted in the, these excess deaths. Why is that? Well, testing stinks still in a lot of places. Um, people can't, uh, even, I, I was just talking with some colleagues recently from another state, still having difficulty uh, getting tests. Certainly it was a big problem in the you know, first uh, couple months of the epidemic. So if you can't test and you can't make the diagnoses, public health says we got to try and figure out how to capture some of these. So they included in there, look, if, if you had somebody die of a respiratory death and they had a known contact with somebody with COVID, you can put in there possible you know, COVID or presumptive contribution by COVID. This is an attempt to capture the missed numbers of deaths that we're not getting uh, with our current numbers. And we're still not, we're still not making up that gap. Um, so this is nothing nefarious. This isn't some reason to try and inflate the numbers. We're trying to understand what's happening around us with real data and public health tries to do this all the time. Mark, would it, Paul, I mean, would it be fair to say, if anything, we may be underestimating? I'm, I'm quite confident that we are undercounting oh. or underestimating. You know, this is this has troubled me from the beginning because I've found myself, uh, you know, running afoul on abortion statistics from state to state, uh, or infant or perinatal mortality statistics. Every state calculates them differently, yeah. and it's hard to compare us to other countries and things like this. And I think it was you, Mark, on a previous episode that said we we're just not set up for population health in America. We're phenomenal at episodic health, but we're not great at population health. And I think some of our listeners may have wondered what we meant by that. But this is a good example. We don't have standardized national definitions. If you have COVID virus and you get hit by a car, what was the cause of death? There has to be one definition and how that's going to be treated. Right. And we lack that. Uh, we're, a, we're a country of states. Every state has a different way of calculating those statistics. It's not a conspiracy. It's just a challenge that we haven't been able to address so far. That's exactly right, yep. Chris. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, you know, I'm a medical director of a nursing home here in town um, uh, where there was an elderly gentleman who was on hospice with col disseminated colorectal cancer. Um, this person had been stable and doing okay, uh, got COVID, um, and ultimately uh, died with that. Now, did, did this person die of colorectal, you know, metastatic colorectal cancer? Did they die of COVID? Did they die of a combination of the two? You know, uh, um, it's, it's a legitimate question, but I think we can all understand that COVID may have contributed something yeah. there and that we want to capture that in some way. Yeah. What would you add, Mark? Oh, no, I'm good. I, 
that was a great explanation. And I think, you know, just the, the des again, the desire for, for precision in numbers when we're in the middle of a crisis and the desperate need to accrue information, maybe overreach at times in order to make sure we haven't missed something. That's just the reality of almost conducting a public health experiment in real time. And so I think these are, and again, it comes back to my concern that the source of a lot of these you know, arguments or stories is not a desire to have more accurate data about COVID deaths. It's a desire to question those who are in authority who are requesting that we change our lifestyle or that we close our businesses or that we comply with the, with the government. And there's an opposition to that, which then drives people to find anything they can to justify that that source of authority is illegitimate. Motivated reasoning. No. Yeah, Paul, yeah. that moves right into, you know, this area on, uh, you know, why believe contrarian people, those who are do not have uh, the experience that, that you have. So what are some of the other reasons you think, Paul? So, you know, I think what Mark was just alluding to is just something we all need to recognize in ourselves that we, um, I, I believe, you know, with this, this, this pandemic has unveiled really the proverbial rock in a hard place. I mean, it, it is true that this is a very serious viral pandemic that threatens uh, many, many people's lives. It is true that the measures that have been put in place to try and mitigate this have caused tremendous pain and suffering, economic hardship, loss, and that will also have uh, psychological and physical health effects. They are both true. As you've said, Tom, when we've talked about this before, we need a dashboard for everything, not just how much COVID is going on out there. We need a dashboard for you know, how much mental health problems are happening, how much substance abuse is happening, how much domestic abuse is happening. That is, both, that is all true. But what, what we find ourselves doing, and this is, uh, I think, just a human attribute, uh, is that we're extremely prone to, one, uh, confirmation bias. We we listen to and grab on to things that confirm our preconceived ideas on things, and we tend to not hear and filter out uh, things that don't confirm what we already believe. I, I find myself doing this all the time. I have to, I have to constantly remind myself to guard against this. Um, and certainly as researchers, we, we are prone to this as well, and we have to show in our method sections with excruciating detail how we try to avoid doing that. Um, the, the other thing that I think Mark was describing, it's sort of talked about is motivated reasoning. Um, that is, I'm motivated to, look, I see how bad these measures are affecting my life. I want to find evidence that tells me I don't need to do this. I, I get it. I, I understand it. Um, I, I sympathize with that. But we have to understand where that, uh, those motivations are really coming from. You know, I think in many of us, almost at a genetic level, we've uh we're we're americans hear us roar we we don't like being told by the king that we have to pay tax on a t right i mean that it really <laughs> it really is in our dna um and and i think we see a lot of that in the protest and i'll have to admit my autosomal dominant you know libertarian <laughs> um and it it happens it's part of us as a people um if you guys could put on your you know your your magic glasses and roll back the tape and watch this movie. What do you think we would have done differently if we had learned all of these things now? What would we have changed in our response? Because I, I, I grow kind of tired of hearing people criticize what's been done 
I think we've probably made some mistakes, but I wonder how we would react differently with all of this education we've had in the last two months. What are, what are your feelings there? One thing you're talking about there, Chris, is what I call, what is called a post hoc fallacy. So yes, you are finding people now doing revisionist history in order to say, see, if only if, because, you know, it's easy to stand up now and say, if only we had. So on the one hand, I'm a little reluctant to accept your challenge to say, what would we have done? Because it's easy to, you know, to predict it. I, you know, I know I might be guilty of naivety here. I think in spite of a lot of problems with how our federal government connects to our states and how our current federal administration relates to the agencies he's supposed to be over, maybe the way the public health infrastructure relates to uh, the medical system, there's lots of problems. And, and also I would say the way that pri the private sector regarding state testing and their responsibility with drugs and other things, mm -hmm. there are also challenges. So these have created you know, areas of understanding that re we recognize as being big time challenges. In spite of that, I think the main thrust of what we finally decided to do starting on March 15th has been correct. It's been very prescient. It made predictions, which many of which have borne out. It has followed a trajectory that we expected. Now we flattened the curve. We've sort of bent down the curve. We've reduced deaths. That's at a Herculean effort. That's a sign of success. So um, there's a lot of lessons to be learned for the future once we can do a real detailed analyses. But frankly, I've been struck by the way in which things have been kind of as expected hmm. in spite of a lot of fissures at the interface of a lot of those entities that I just referred to when I was started. Well, so Paul, you're in charge. Um, what, what would you do? You're a medical director of the world. <laughs> That's a job I wouldn't take. <laughs> but but do, you, do you agree with Mark or what would you revise our responses in any way? I'm very hesitant to go against anything Mark ever said. But, um, uh, I, but it I might just, apply to this fall, <laughs> whatever you say. Right. Uh, I, I would say this, that... Um, you know, on the infectious disease, public health side of things, we've been talking about pandemic preparedness for decades mm. um, with the anticipation that a pandemic was uh, likely to come. We thought it would be in the form of a new pandemic influenza strain, which, by the way, might still come at any time. In, in uh, all, and in all fairness, you've been talking to audiences of like-minded people, and it never gets beyond that. No one that, would That's know. right. Uh, you know, we, we do simulations. We generate big reports. We, we actually pay for these, uh, you know, different projects to kind of look at what will happen. And every one of them comes up with the conclusion, we're not ready for this. Uh, we, we don't have a whole lot of the infrastructure ready and in place. We need to do something about this. And then it kind of, it's not right in front of us. It's not the immediate threat and it gets tabled. And, and, you know, here we are with not having swabs to swab a nose and not, uh, you know, having reagents for the PCR test and trying to ramp up for, you know, three months straight. I hope that it will not be that case with uh, public health infrastructure funding for at least pandemic preparedness going forward. Paul, to wrap up this episode, you had brought up the, a, a subject that's, uh, I think, fundamental. And it comes down to this question. How do you know that Uzbekistan even exists, Paul? <laughs> uh, someone told me. And Mark, how do you know that 5% of North Dakotans are Native Americans? Um, I trust the state census data. So, in other words, Paul, in bringing up these seemingly facile questions, 
I'm sorry, I said facile. Uh, you bring up a fundamental point of how do we know to believe anything? What do you want to say on this? I know this is near and dear to your heart. So, you know, when you think about everything you know, um, even your own birthday, um, you take really on the word of someone else. Uh, the vast majority of what we learn, what we know, is not done by our own empir empiric study of something. It's, it's known, uh, we, we take it uh, on somebody else's word. And, and we have varying degrees of trust in other people's words um, based on what kind of authority they carry. And so uh, I think a whole lot of these discussions on like, what do I believe? What, you know, what, what's the truth here or whatever um, rests on the authority of the source. And so my, my first uh, you know, statement is like, if it smells really fishy, um, you do a quick fact check on the thing. There's lots of fact checkers out there. I mean, if, if it's an obvious lie that some Nobel laureate, you know, said something he really didn't say, well, that's quick, quickly dismissed. Then the second thing would be, you know, other types of authority. And, and I think, you know, Chris, you got to this a little bit with the, the king and the tea and all that. There's a little <laughs> bit of a, you know, an anti-authoritarianism in all of us. And I think, Mark, you've used the word, I had, to, I, I had to go look it up. He's smarter than me on a lot of things. This antinomianism, I think, is what that's about, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, it's just sort of a, a bent towards, like, defying authority. But, you know, if we do that, you're you're just kind of lost. I mean, you, then you, you've got nothing that you can sort of act on or move on. It's sort of as a paralysis if you're not going to take um, some information and believe it. And I think to believe things, we have to look at the source and look at the authority of the source. And that gets to credibility, which we could talk about more uh, if we had a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and this is a very Christian thing. I mean, the, the, the supernatural virtue of faith ultimately relies on the authority of the one we believe god and but it, it goes to everything else in life little children believe things because their parents tell them so i guess the the question i would ask is a lot of these people making some seemingly crazy claims have letters behind their names like we have what do we do then right so i mean it's it's it has sort of brought to light where if you got an MD behind your name, it actually doesn't mean you're a very good epidemiologist, right? <laughs> so, I, I, in fact, Correct. you can find some really, really egregious errors in an uh, epidemiologic, you know, inferential thinking, uh, even with an MD behind your name. So, if you're if you're looking at epidemiologic data, look to someone who actually is trained and studied and knows epidemiology and has a track record uh, on this. That's the other thing is a track record, mm -hmm. and I think also. Does it conform with what the body of experts in that area is saying, or is this person an outlier, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes outliers are brilliant, but sometimes they're just kind of outliers and kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, what you're referring to there, Paul, is, is according to Hill's criteria of causality, it's the issue of coherence with prior knowledge. And one thing that I try hard to teach my students is you aren't really in a position to advance a body of knowledge or even critique it until you, to some degree, have mastered it. And so I think that that sense that some a point somebody's making is coming as an extension of the degree to which they've understood and it's coherent with the prior knowledge in that area, to me is extremely important in trying to evaluate the, the credibility or the legitimacy of something that's being said. Um, another issue would be the community of scholars. It's peer review. It's a lot of peers. Now, if you've been censured by your professional association, you know, you might say, well, that's because they're after me. Well, but then that's not a good sign. 
And so I think being a participant in and a contributor to her and being recognized by a, a group of, of peers is extremely important. So that's just a few of the many things that I think about when I try to evaluate the validity of a statement or the credibility of a source. And actually, many of my arguments actually apply equally well to what I would call uh, authentic science as they do to what I also call authentic theology. Mm -hmm. So many of these principles of authenticity, validity, and quality, they do apply. Now they're different, and the epistemological approaches are different, but there are some overlap, but we might have to save that for another day. You guys have just been tremendous. I, I hope our listeners really get a lot of worthwhile information out of this. Thanks for being with us in tandem today from North Dakota. Oh, yes, Mark. I have one little ditty that I'd like to share for those who are sometimes victimized by some of the conspiracies out there. It's a little thing I use with my kids when they were, when they were small. It goes like this. Fear knocked on the door. Faith opened the door. No one was there. And I think a lot of our penchant for following these conspiracies is driven by a sort of fear. And if we open the door to see the truth, the reality, the evidence, coupled with an act of faith, whatever we feared most usually isn't even a reality. And even if it is, that faith and that taking the initiative to open the door makes it disappear. So I, I hope people are willing to take on the thing that sometimes drives them to pursue some of these things from a perspective of faith and a proactive approach to open the doors to discern what's real. Thank you for our listeners who have been with us for another awesome episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And thank you to our guest. Uh, and please share this good news uh, of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or, of course, at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern, and I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.